Good morning. Are we not blessed to have such a creative staff that can do skits and videos and beautiful images for sermon series and music? Don't you guys appreciate the staff that we have and the work they do? Thank you to Kara and Cindy and Katie and to Greg for worship and all of the staff is such a great team of people and we are blessed to, I am blessed to be able to work with them. I invite you to pray with me again, and let's ask God to bless this time of looking into His Word, and as we step into this new sermon series that we're calling Faith Works, would you pray with me? God, we do thank you that you are a God who has brought us to faith in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, you have given us work to do in His name. As we look into this letter of James, we ask that you would be speaking to our hearts and to our minds about how we can grow deeper in our faith with you so that we can do more and more of the things that make your name famous in your world. We know that your light and your love shines through us in the name of Jesus, and we ask that you would make us to be a blessing to those that you would call us to serve as we continue on this journey of life following Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. It is always fun to start a new series, and so it, 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 it's kind of exciting for me to be able to uh, set up where we're going. And as you can see from this great uh, artwork on the platform, uh, we're calling it FaithWorks, and that's primarily because the letter of James is often known for uh, his statement on faith and works. And there's been debate between, you know, what saves us, faith or works? And in, in, in the uh, letters of Paul, you know, he says we're saved only uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet you have James comes along and says, you know, faith without works is, is a dead faith. And so who's right? Uh, and so uh, James is, is known for this faith works debate, and we're going to get into that a little bit as part of the series, because that's what's in the, in the letter. But we're also mashed the two words together to make one word called faith works to kind of highlight that as we look through the letter of James, his perspective on faith and works is so much broader than just that one theological issue. And so we're going to be looking at the language of faith and works and understanding how does that apply to our lives personally in this season and as a faith community. We've been talking about uh, going on this vitality pathway this year where we're talking about what does it mean for us to be a healthy and a mission church. And that language of healthy and missional has been an important part of us uh, seeking God's will for us as a faith community in the future. And I think the words faith and works can tie in to those same uh, ideas as well. As we want to be healthy, our, our health spiritually comes from our faith in Jesus Christ and our relationship with God. But, but we know that it doesn't end with just that vertical relationship, that, that Jesus taught that that relationship with God is to also go horizontally out into our relationships with those around us and into the world, that, that as we become more healthy in a spiritual sense, we are also become more missional as we pursue Christ's mission in the world, and we have work to do on behalf of the kingdom of God. And really, those tie back to the, the greatest commandments, right? Jesus taught his disciples that the, the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. He said to love your neighbor as yourself. 
We have that vertical relationship with God that then overflows in love and mercy and grace to those around us. And Jesus then kind of reiterated that as our mission as a church when he sent his disciples out with the great commission to saying, go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Faith and works are a part of the spiritual life. And so we're, we're going to be asking bigger questions through the series that I think the letter of James poses to us, like how does faith in Jesus Christ work itself out in my life personally? What difference does it make in my life to have faith in Jesus Christ? Or how does faith in Jesus work itself out in Christian community? What does it mean to be a part of a a, a body of Christ called the church? And how does our faith in Jesus impact the way that we live and do church together? And maybe one of the more important questions might be, what can we be learning from this letter about who God is calling us to be and how we can continue to grow in our faith? No matter what age or stage of life we are in, God wants us to be growing in our faith, going deeper in our relationship with him and using our gifts and resources and talents and treasures to serve his kingdom in creative and innovative ways. And how does this letter help us to be able to do that as well. I love the the life app for for this month. You know, you can't plan this stuff, right? Perseverance is refusing to give up when life gets hard. When when we get into next week's sermon, James goes right into the issue of perseverance, right? Faith is is persevering in the midst of life's difficulties and trials and and challenges. And that's one of the things that we'll see about this letter of James. It's a a very realistic letter that that doesn't pull punches and, and assumes that life is going to be messy and challenging and difficult. And when that happens, what faith, what value does our faith have to play? So I think it's going to be a fun series. I'm excited about it. This morning, what I'd like to do is just focus on the introduction that James gives to the letter because he he gives a salutation in James chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to turn in the Bibles that are provided, it's on page 1880, but I also would encourage you, uh, if you want to be bringing your own Bible during this series, this is going to be a great study series where you may want to highlight or mark up your Bible, or you might want to take some sermon notes. So be thinking about that in the weeks ahead. This might be an opportunity to uh, uh, you know, get out your uh, flat screen Bible and uh, learn how to highlight on your screen. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to go deeper into God's Word. And we're going to do that in verse 1 of James, where he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, I wanted to focus on this one verse today because the scholars suggest that this greeting is unique in all of the Bible to James. No one else uses these same words and phrases in the way James does. And that's because there's a lot of deeper meaning and understanding that goes into these unique phrases. First of all, he identifies himself as James. Well, a good question is, well, which James, right? There were a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. J- Jesus had a couple disciples named James. And, and it, it, we need to know that this probably was not James, the son of Zebedee, which was one of his 12 disciples. Most scholars suggest that we're pretty confident that it was James the Just, 
who became the leader of the Jerusalem church for almost 30 years. And the Jerusalem church was a really important church in, in early Christianity because it was kind of the, the center of operation. It was the, the mothership for all of these new churches that were being formed out there uh, beyond Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everyone came back to the Jerusalem church as the kind of the place of authority and, and, and confirmation that what they were doing was right in line with what Jesus taught and what the Holy Spirit was leading. And so the leader of the Jerusalem church had a high position and a lot of authority in this fledgling Christian community. We can see in Acts 15 where they called the, the council at Jerusalem where they had to come together because Paul was going off into all these places and Gentiles were coming into the faith and everything was getting confused and messy and they had to pull everybody together and go, hey, wait, wait, let's all get on the same page and make sure we are in line with what God is leading us to do. And so James, as the head of the Jerusalem church, oversaw the, the, the challenges of this early church with growth and new people coming in. We also assume from most of the uh, historical markers that we have that this James was the brother of Jesus. And he would say, wait, wait, the brother of Jesus? You know, Jesus you know, was the son of God. He's the only son of God. There aren't more than one sons of God. How could Jesus have a brother? Well, if you're not familiar, uh, we can see mention that Jesus wasn't an only child. He was the only son of God, but that he had other brothers and sisters and extended family. And you can see that by, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. In several of the Gospels, it shares this story where Jesus was in his teaching ministry and he's out and about and teaching with the people who are following. And in verse 46 of chapter 12, it says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. From all indications, what we can tell is that this James in the church in Jerusalem was probably the stepbrother, the son of Joseph and Mary, who was born after Jesus was born and became a Christ follower himself and a leader in the church. Information about this James is very limited, but generally it's believed that the author of the letter of James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, the brother of Jesus. And we know that James died as a martyr for the church around 62 AD when the Jewish high priest at the time assembled a Sanhedrin or a council of judges and they condemned James on the charges of breaking the religious law and they had it executed by stoning. The original document, they suggest, that is therefore likely written no later than about 48 AD and before the Jerusalem Council that we see in Acts 15, which happened in around 50 AD. And if you think about the dates, that means that this letter was written roughly less than 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's one of the earliest documents in this early Christian church, and we see that reflected in the the Hebrew kind of sensitivities and understanding that this is still at this stage a very kind of messianic Jewish movement called Christianity and, and that they're trying to sort out what does it mean now to have faith in this 
person called Jesus Christ. It was written in good and even fluid Hellenistic Greek, which was the language of the broader culture at the time. So there's also this sense that the church was growing beyond just Jerusalem and was impacting Gentiles and non-Jewish peoples. And so the writing itself was written to a much broader audience. It was a letter, but of a different character than most of the other letters in the New Testament in that it wasn't addressed to a particular group of people or to a person, but to this broad group of Christians and this movement that's happening around that time. Ultimately, from the beginning, it was likely intended to be a distributed piece of material that all the Christians could pass around and share. For us this morning, I'd like to suggest that as we look at this first verse in the letter of James, there are three angles that we can look at using this this phrase, faith works. The first one is that James is going to suggest to us that faith works. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it works in your life to transform your heart and your mind from the inside out to, to have a new experience of relationship with God. James, he says, he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, James is writing in the full knowledge that he has the authority and the position as the head of the Jerusalem church to exercise that leadership and the authority of his position to lead these people. And yet he doesn't choose to use his title or his position. Instead, he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word that he uses here for servant in the Greek, doulos, actually is more literally translated slave. He identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this very way that James identifies himself, we can begin to understand the nature of the Christian life that is one of service to God and service to others. It's not about power and prestige and climbing the social ladder It's about humbling ourselves after the model of Jesus Christ and understanding that the nature of Christian authority is polar opposite and upside down to the way that the world would teach us to use our position and our power and our authority. Now, slavery in Roman times is different than our historical context might teach us to think. Back in that day, slavery was common as part of the economic structures in Roman society. Uh, Criminals could be put into slavery in the mines to uh, do their penance and their hard work of service there. Uh, Rural slavery was common where people who had farms needed people to come and and work on the farms and so people could serve there and as slaves in the household. And then they also had internal household slaves. And people could actually sell themselves into slavery in a sense that they were giving themselves opportunities to learn a skill, to develop a trade. They could earn their freedom over time, and sometimes slaves could even uh, be purchased out of slavery through the work that they've done or by a benevolent landowner or somebody who wants to free them and, and pay for their debt. We also see that there was imperial slavery, and the emperor's household had slaves, and those slaves weren't often... Uh, uh, you know, low-class low people. These were people who had some of the highest wealth and power and authority in the land. And we can see that example of slavery going back to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament where he became a slave in Pharaoh's household and, and was second only to Pharaoh in all the land. But Jesus is 
one who teaches us that the way that we use our power and our authority is polar opposite to the way that our culture teaches us. If we think back to the teaching of Jesus with his disciples, uh, looking at Luke 22 at the Last Supper, Jesus is trying to leave his disciples with final teaching and helping them to prepare for what's coming. And of course, they're sitting at the table, the very table where he introduced communion to them. And it says in verse 24 of Luke chapter 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And so from the very beginning, Jesus taught his disciples that leadership and power and authority modeled after his example was not one that claimed right and, and claimed uh, the, the ability to dictate to people what they should do, but it was a leadership by service, a leadership of care, a leadership of influence. And so the very way that James identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ indicates to us that faith works in our life when we get the lordship question right. You see, Jesus gave his life and was raised from the dead by the power of God so that he could be the king of kings and the lord of lords, that his name became the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And too often, I think we accept this belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but we go around living our lives as if we really are the Lord and master of our own destinies. And, and, and I think we can learn from James' attitude here is that the starting point for faith in our lives is making sure that Jesus is being Lord in our lives so that everything else then begins, comes to work out through his plan and his authority in our lives. Speaking into an early Jewish Christian context, it was also important to recognize that having faith in Jesus Christ wasn't contradictory to the monotheism of, of Judaism. And so he says, slave of God, but also of the Lord Jesus Christ, indicating that serving Jesus was the same as worshiping God. And that in this new reality in Jesus, loyalty to Jesus doesn't undermine our loyalty to God. In fact, they're one and the same, and following Jesus is actually the way to follow God. Christianity begins with the lordship question for each one of us. And at every age and stage of life, it's good for us to go back and ask, is Jesus the Lord of our life today? That's how faith begins to work in our lives. The second way we can think about faith works is that faith, if it's real, as James will say later in the letter, works. It, it does something. It, it, it's an active faith. It's a, it's a faith that moves us forward and gives us things to do and, and helps us to understand that it's not just a belief system that we have, but it's a lifestyle that we are living out as Christians. Faith in Jesus Christ is more than just believing in Jesus. 
It lives out the truth of who God has revealed himself to be in his son so that we become a reflection of who he is in our lives. Once we establish the lordship question in our lives, we begin to look at how does that reality begin to work itself out in our relationships with those closest to us? How does it begin to work itself out in our relationship as a faith community and how we do church? How does it work itself out in the careers that we pursue and the ways that we invest in our local community and the ways that we share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around us? And that's what... James will do over and over again is bring practical application to what does it mean that Jesus is now the Lord of our lives and what will it look like as we live that out in our lives? And we'll see that he applies that truth to experiences of trials and suffering. We know that life is difficult and when trials come, how does our faith help us through that? What is the nature and the challenge of sin in our lives? And even though we've been forgiven by Jesus, we know that we continue to struggle with the temptation to go back to that old life. And how does our faith help us in overcoming the temptation to sin? How do we understand the lordship of of Christ, not not only on Sunday morning for an hour, but day to day in each moment and in an ongoing way that we live our life with Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, and it's not something that we just do at church on Sunday morning? What does the culture of true Christian community look like when it's lived out of a faith that Jesus is the head of the church and the Holy Spirit of God gives us direction and guidance for how we share life and do ministry and organize this place that we call church? And ultimately, how do we find wisdom in the midst of all of this to be able to make wise choices and decisions? Faith in God and in Jesus Christ as Lord leads us to transform our lives internally, which then leads us to transform the community around us as it works itself out in the overflow of our life with God. And that's where I'd like to suggest the third way of looking at it is to to mash those two words together and call it faith works. Kind of like uh, you think about the skunk works from Lockheed Martin. Have you heard of the skunk works? Skunk works is kind of this this other entity that they uh, put together in World War II where they gave them these projects to do these secret military aircraft. And and then they came out with all of these innovative ways of, of building airplanes. And they called it skunk works based on a little Abner cartoon back in the 40s. I was doing a little research on skunk works because uh, it was interesting to, to see, you know, how this came about. One of the things they said is that the designation of skunk works has now become kind of a widely known terminology in business and engineering and in technical fields to describe what they call a group within an organization given a high degree of autonomy and unhampered by bureaucracy, tasked with working on advanced and often secret projects. And I I really, that struck me as I read that phrase because in some ways I think that's the perspective that James has on what the church is supposed to be. The church is kind of supposed to be the faith works of the kingdom of God where we are given a lot of autonomy and freedom from bureaucracy to be able to take the gifts and the the power of the spirit that we've been given to become innovative in responding to God's call in our life to meet the needs of the community around us, to share the good news message with those who haven't heard about Jesus, and to come up with all kinds of new ways of sharing the love of God with one another. 
And I think that's kind of James' attitude by the way he describes his audience as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Because if you think about the 12 tribes, I mean, that, off, that harkens back to, to Israel. But he, he doesn't say the 12 tribes of Israel. He says the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And we know historically that as the, the Hebrew people were called by God, they originally formed with 12 different tribes. But over time, through warfare and, and, and dissension, those tribes were scattered around the world and they dissipated down to just one remaining tribe, the tribe of Judah. And that's where we get the terminology of Judaism and Jewish faith. And so the faith that we see coming from the time of Jesus came from the one remaining tribe of Judah. And you see, part of the messianic hope that the people had back then is that one day when the Messiah came, God would call all of the 12 tribes that had been scattered into the world back into a unified whole, that the people of God would be put back together and brought to wholeness and unity through the Messiah and the work of God. And so what James is kind of identifying here is that what he's wanting his audience to begin to realize is that they are the faith works that God has given his power and his authority to, to begin to live out this messianic hope. That God wasn't just calling the literal uh, 12 tribes of Israel, but that those 12 tribes scattered throughout the world really represent God's heart for all people. That God's heart for all of his children was to gather them back to himself. And that the message of Messiah that was revealed through Jesus Christ is that God's call has gone out to all the nations now to gather them back to Jesus, to experience the unity and the wholeness that God had intended from the beginning. And God's method for bringing that message of hope and to bringing that wholeness back into the world was his faith works that he calls the church. And that's our mission, that's our call, that's our work that he's given us to do, not to earn his love and his forgiveness, but to, out of the overflow of the forgiveness that we've been given, to put that faith to work, to bring God's healing and wholeness to his world. We can see that James is writing to a broad and increasingly multiracial community that goes beyond just Jewish people. But Gentiles are coming to faith. Centurions are, are having their whole household come into the church. And the Apostle Paul is going out and preaching to other countries. And James understands that it's really important in the midst of a dissipating church that's going out into the culture to understand how does the lordship of Christ and faith in Jesus change the way we live so that we are impacting culture rather than having the culture around us impact us. He writes to a community that was struggling with divisiveness because of their multiracial character, infighting among one another, who's in, who's out, intolerance. Well, well, you guys weren't you know, part of the original Jewish law, so, so we can't accept you into community unless you agree to do the whole law. Favoritism, uh, favoring the wealthy over the poor, uh, and an overpowering desire to gain wealth and status in life. He writes from a heart that has known both joy and adversity, and he's vitally interested in creating true Christian community where we can come together to navigate all of the various challenges that life throws at us. 
Faith in God and in Jesus Christ, James is going to suggest to us, is a communal reality. It's a faith lived in community. The inner workings of the Christian community flow out of our service to God and in Jesus Christ. And as we become that faith works of the larger kingdom of God, we too begin to see how our faith in Christ is lived out in our relationships with one another. We are going to see how faith works itself in us to change us and transform us from the inside out. We'll see how faith then works itself out in a lifestyle of action and love in Jesus' name and ultimately see how faith works to form a community of God's people that becomes a reflection of the love and the power of God to change the lives of those who come in contact with Jesus through, the, through us. We serve God as we serve Jesus as Lord. And I am excited about this series because I think that God is going to work through this series to touch each one of us in a unique and special way to see how we again can make him the Lord of our lives and see how his power at work in us can transform not only our church, but the community around us as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, We come to you as your servants, not seeking our own gain or our own pleasure, but asking God, what can we do to bring you pleasure? What is it that will delight your heart as we seek to worship you, to serve you, and to be a reflection of your love and your grace to the world? God, as we enter into this series, would you teach us again how your call on our lives is to work out our faith in a way that it not only transforms our hearts, but it transforms the culture around us, teaching others what it means to live in an upside-down world through your power and your love in our lives. And God, we will praise you for the ways that you speak to us, the ways you teach us, and the way you manifest yourself among us in the weeks ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.